Welcome to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Uh, Prophet, priests, and kings continue in our series with Elijah. The title is Against All Odds. Against All Odds. Everyone loves an underdog. We love stories that depict a person or a team that overcomes overwhelming odds to gain victory. We all love that. We love a David and Goliath story. And David and Goliath seems to be the theme of many stories and books. And they serve as an inspiration to many as it should. Today we're going to read of how Elijah overcomes, uh, a vigor, overcomes against all odds. Now last week, we examined the settings and the characters of this upcoming battle that we're going to look at today between the prophets of Baal and Elijah. And through this examination, <clears throat> we came to understand that it was very important for us to live courageously and boldly for God, especially when the circumstances are hostile and the consequences are dire. We are not called to be uh, secret agent Christians or to hide away from this hostility, but to confront it head on. And today's passage shares two reasons why I believe it's important for you and I to do so, to to confront this type of hostility and and this sinful rebellion against God head on. That's for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. Two reasons, for the glory of God and the salvation of souls. This battle between Yahweh and Baal is much more than a cosmic contest to demonstrate which God has more power or which God has true existence, but one that has everlasting internal consequences. So we're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 18, but we're going to look at verse 22, and I believe we looked at it last week. But this will be, the, be our, our jumping off point this morning. It's here on the monitor. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 22, Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's prophets are 450 men. So with that, Father, we ask for your blessings as we open up your word to 1 Kings 18. And we examine this cosmic contest, one that's familiar to many of us. It's a famous portion of scripture. Uh, Maybe for many of us, we're being reacquainted with it. For some, it's our first introduction. But wherever we are, let us open up our hearts. Uh, Let us speak and know the difference between my words, my mere opinions, and the truth. And scripture may be very clear. May your spirit work as we speak one message, but really, it's 30 or 40 messages individually to each heart as the Spirit works. And above all, I pray that those that hear my voice, whether here personally or on the web, Father will hear and respond to the Spirit's work. We thank you for Elijah and we thank you for the events we're about to uh, examine. And Lord, may it lead us to live more courageously and boldly in your word. We thank this in your name. Amen. Elijah stands alone. 
in confronting Israel. Now it says the 450 prophets of Baal, and that is really going to be the focus, but you might remember there was also 400 false prophets of Asherah. But in here it seems the the prophets of Baal are going to be uh, front and center. But Elijah stands alone in confronting Israel for their abandonment of worshiping God and God alone. They have wholeheartedly embraced the worship of Baal, forsaking the covenant of their ancestors and forefathers and forgetting the goodness and the grace of Yahweh who has brought them out of slavery. The northern ten kingdoms of Israel have plunged headfirst into idol worship soon after King Solomon's death and the separation of Israel. King Ahab has married a, <clears throat> a very wicked and evil queen named Jezebel, who has either killed off or run off the prophets of Yahweh and have installed prophets of Baal and Asherah into favor. In the narrative so far, we have read that God had sent Elijah to the king to pronounce the judgment that there will be no rain nor dew on the earth, which now has lasted three and a half years, causing a region-wide famine that has devastated the land and the people. Yet still, no repentance is shown either by the king nor the people of Israel. In fact, Elijah in last week's reading had asked the people, how long will you go limping between two different opinions, two different ways of thinking? He said, if the Lord God, if the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal is God, then follow him. Choose one side or the other. But sadly, it is recorded, as we saw last week, that the people did not answer him a word. So this leads today to the cosmic contest that has captured the wonderful, powerful, miraculous act of God. So as we continue, we're first going to see the challenge from Elijah. And we're going to read through this portion of Scripture. Again, I encourage you to bring a, bring a Bible. If you don't have a Bible, please see me. I want to give you a, a free copy of God's Word. In verse 23, we see the challenge from Elijah to the prophets of Baal. He says, let two, pools be give, two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves and cut it in pieces. This is something that we do. And lay it on the wood. But he says, put no fire to it. Now, this, you know, back then, sacrifices would be cut off on the altar. You would put fire on it and you would offer it up. But he says, don't put any fire to it. He says, and I will prepare the other bull and I will lay it at wood and I will put no fire on it. And you will call upon the name of your God and I will call upon the name of the Lord. <clears throat> and then the God who answers by fire, the one who brings down fire, let him be God. And all the people answered, hey, well spoken. Let's do this. Next, we come to the contest in verse 25. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourself one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. And call upon the name of your God, but put no fire on it. So the contest begins. Ding, 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 the bell rings. They begin to prepare their sacrifice. They put it on their altar that's already there. They cut it up, and then they begin, as we see in verse uh, 26. But what we see is not fire. But all we see is Baal's response is crickets. Nothing. Let's read. And they took the bull that was given them. They prepared it, called upon the name of Baal, from morning until noon. So probably probably from 9 o'clock to noon is typically that time. For three hours. 
Oh, Baal, answer us, they cried out. But look it, there is no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And in verse 27, at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is a god. <clears throat> Either he is musing or entertaining himself, or he's relieving himself. He's going to the bathroom. Or he's on a journey. Or perhaps he is asleep, and he must be wakened. Verse 28. And they cried aloud, and they cut themselves after their custom with swords and with lances until the blood, it says, gushed out upon them. But as noonday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. Underline this. There was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. And it's important in Scripture. Remember we see in the New Testament where Jesus will say, truly, truly, I say unto you. Uh, he's repeating himself for emphasis. In Isaiah, when we see that the Lord is holy, 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 he's emphasizing his holiness, which is interesting. Because God is love, God is compassion, God is tender. But nowhere in Scripture does it say God is love, 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 love. God is tender, tender, tender. But God is holy, holy, holy. And they have forgotten that. Thank you. So what is he saying? He's emphasizing there was no voice, no one answered, no one paid attention. It sounds like a parent, doesn't it? Elijah, like any good competitor, begins to mock and make fun of them. Elijah here is the original trash talker. One theologian remarks that self-laceration was practiced to rouse and to manipulate a God's pity and response. And this should not surprise us. I was going to say much more on this, but pastorally I'm going to shut my mouth and just be quiet. But I believe that I'm just going to suffice to say that Satan always wants to desecrate what God has made and called good. And so they begin to cut themselves as their custom was to manipulate and to get his attention, but to no avail. There's no voice, no answer, no attention given to either their cries or to their demeanor or to their actions. Baal has no voice, he has no power, and he has no existence. After their humiliating public failure for almost six hours, they're doing this, but nothing happens. It is now Elijah's turn. And he makes his challenge much more complicated. Now for me, I imagine Elijah's coming up and Rocky music is going behind him here. Look at verse 30. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people, now imagine, this is the people who are quiet. They're watching for six hours as nothing has happened. Then he just says, here, come near to me. I want you to see something. I'm putting words into his mouth now. The people came near to him. And look what he has to do. This is a sad verse, by the way, if you want to underline it. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. These people, the worshipers of Yahweh, the one God who had delivered them from slavery, who had brought them through the Red Sea, who had defeated their enemies in the Promised Land, who said, build me an altar, they had torn it down. 
Now, in an Israel, you remember that their altars were one, which is just one stone upon another. They were not to cut it. They were not to form it or fashion it. Now, if you read earlier, we didn't read this of the altar of Baal. They had built an altar of Baal where the altar of God stood. It's kind of like they tore it down and said, build up this one for Baal. So they had to repair it before they could even offer the sacrifices. How sad. So in 31, Elijah took 12 stones according to the numbers of the tribes of the son of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord had come, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with those stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar. So he started to dig a trench. As great as could contain, it says, two seas of seed. So about four gallons of water around around this trench or in this trench. Verse 33, it says, And he put wood in order, and he cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. And then he said, Fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. He's making it more complicated here. He's making a statement here. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. Now you can imagine the people as they're watching and those that are helping. What in the world are we going to do here? I mean, you could not start a fire on this by now. First, a second, and then a second. And then he said, again, do it a third time. And he did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar, so about four gallons a high. And he filled the trench also with water. So we're getting this image of water just dripping everywhere. When we read that, when we then, we then read, excuse me, that Elijah's countenance was remarkably different from the false prophets. Remember, theirs was filled with loud cries and limping about and cutting themselves and calling out to their God. And what's also interesting here is that Elijah timed his turn to come at the regular time of sacrifice of 3 p.m. in the afternoon. This is when they would naturally do the sin sacrifice. And instead of trying to manipulate Yahweh or to make a spectacle of himself, Elijah prays a simple prayer. And we have it recorded here in verse 36. This is a great prayer. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he said this, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. Now he's referring back to who God is and what he's done. Let it be known, circle that, let it be known this day, what? That you are God in Israel. Let it be known that you are the God of Israel. Not Baal, not Ashereth, not Queen Elizabeth, or Queen Elizabeth, who did that come? Queen Jezebel, excuse me, of Britain. No, I just offended a whole, a whole, a whole nation state. Uh, and, 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 you know, no, no Ashereth, but you are God in Israel. Not only that, he says, let it be known that I am your servant, not these other 850 prophets, not the evil King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. But not only does that, he says, not only that you are God, let it be known that I am your servant. And then the third request, he says that, uh, that, they may be, that it may be known that I have done all these things at your word. If you want to have more effective prayers, 
If you want to be a man who has powerful praying, as James tells us that Elijah did, then you and I should adopt this type of prayer. Our prayer should reflect that there is only one God and that we are his servants and that we obey his word. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done as in heaven or on earth as it is in heaven. That's the Lord's prayer. Verse 37, he communicates the two reasons for this cosmic contest. We're now coming. Why is it that they're doing this type of thing? Why isn't it a battle royale in some type of way? Let's take out those 100 prophets that are in hiding. You choose 100 and we'll just fight this out. That's how Israel seemed to do it. Uh, why don't there be a battle between Ahab and uh, uh, Elijah? But why this battle? He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me. That this people may know that you, O Lord, are God. This is the glory of God. And that you have turned their hearts back. That's an important passage here. You see, that's what God is trying to do here. To glorify himself and turn their hearts back to him. I don't know what struggle you're facing in your life. I don't know what circumstances you're facing. I don't know what the consequences of your sin or your life choices are. But let me tell you, here's what God is trying to do. He wants you to know that he is God. And he wants you to turn your heart towards him. Everything in life is directed to those two things. To glorify God and to draw others to him. To turn their heart. Elijah is convinced that God will honor his simple but remarkable request because he approaches the Lord on the basis of a sin sacrifice and a simple faith and trust that God will answer him. And why will God answer him? Because he is asking what God had told him that he had already done. Hence why you and I should pray the promises of God. I believe we should pray scripture. You know, and we try to model that. And I think uh, 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 Randy and, and, and um, Land and our elders do that very well. Is when we pray, you'll hear that they're praying many times scripture. I believe God loves to hear his words poured back to him. We pray his will be done, not ours. Of course, you and I know that God does, as a matter of fact, answer this simple prayer. As we continue in verse 38. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering. Not only did it consume the burnt offering, but look at it. It consumes the wood and it consumes the 12 stones. How hot did that fire have to be? It consumed those 12 stones and the dust and it licked up the water that was in the trench. This was not just some little fire that started with some briquettes and God says, oh, now the meat is all barbecued for you. This is just something coming down. I mean, this is more than your dad's attempt this July 4th to cook some hamburgers. I mean, this thing here is just one burning inferno. You would not want to be around this thing. I can imagine what an awe-strucking vision this must have been. 
But it's in this way that Yahweh demonstrates his existence, his power, and his sovereignty. I believe God used this challenge by fire to point out the foolishness of worshiping false gods. And why fire? Well, since you may recall, since Baal followers believed that he controlled the thunder, the lightning, and the storms, why couldn't he do this? But God uses this drought, this famine, this fire to prove that only he is the one and true living God. Amen? Baal was quiet. No one answered. No one paid attention. There was no voice. In these last three and a half years, God went to the strength of this false God and defeated him, put him down, put him down, humiliated him. What an awesome display that must have been. Could you imagine being those men? Ahab, Obadiah, the false prophets whose lives were about to take a drastic turn. We're just the people. Their response, looking at that. You and I read it. I, I don't even know if you could capture this on film and make it as powerful as a moment as they could. The visuals alone must have been amazing and most likely unexpected by the audience. Talk about a time in which you wish there was instant replay. Play that one again, but they didn't. I mean, it was there. And I pray there weren't too many too close. They probably went home with singed eyebrows, singed hair, with the smell of smoke on their smocks and their, and their, their cloaks. Can't believe what happened today. You miss the cosmic contest of all time. The narrator then records three responses. You'll see this on the monitor. The first one is God answers his prayer because the people's heart was open to the truth that Yahweh was God. Look at that verse. And when all the people saw it, what did it say that they did? They fell on their faces and they cried out, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. Finally, the answer that he had been asked them as they were limping between two opinions. Is Lord God? Is Yahweh God? Or is Baal is God? Finally, they fall on their faces and their hearts are turned toward God. Number two, the second response is we see that Elijah then pronounces judgment on those prophets of Baal. Elijah said to them, seize him in verse 40. Seize those prophets of Baal. Let not one of them escape. And they seized him and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and he slaughtered them there. Not only did it change their hearts, but we see here an outpouring of, of judgment on these prophets. They respond to God's judgment as they kill them. Now, most likely, I'll speak a little bit more of this next week, but most likely, these were the soldiers of King Ahab. I mean, back then, people weren't walking around with swords hooked onto them. I mean, this, this is not the Middle Ages that you and I think. These are farmers who don't have much to farm because there's a drought and a famine. They're not carrying swords and plowshares with them. Most likely, this is a mixture of, of maybe some of them that have brought some swords, but many probably others who were part of King Ahab's um, guards. But Elijah pronounces judgment on the prophets of Baal. 
And you will see that come time and time again. As that when God shows and demonstrates, judgment will happen. And number third, the third response is that God responds by graciously providing the much needed rain that they so desperately needed after three and a half years of drought. In verse 41, Elijah said to Ahab, go up, eat and drink. In other words, get ready, enjoy yourself. There is about to become rain for there is the sound of the rushing rain. And as you continue in that portion of scripture, you'll see that Ahab does do so. Elijah goes to a mountain and he waits and eventually the rain comes and Elijah goes to meet the king. Things have changed drastically through this. But there's more to this story than just these three responses. Though you and I should be uh, glorified in those things, we ought to point those out that God is in the, in the habit of changing lives, of throwing judgment and giving graciously to those that he loves. Now these miraculous, miraculous events are captured and preserved by the Holy Spirit in scriptures. For more than just though our entertainment's sake or for morality or just for us to share the chil- with children a great story. They are more than just a collection of exciting stories and morality tales. They serve a much higher purpose. So why do you and I have this story today? It's in order to direct our hearts to the one living and true God. That's why it's captured here in the pages of Scripture. It's why it survived 3,000 years in transition from one script to another. So that you and I may direct our hearts towards the one true and living God as the Israelites of that day. One who is sovereign. This is the God. He's the one who is providential. He's the one who is powerful. Who existence is not limited to any type of territory. One who grants mercy. One who grants grace to whom he chooses. And he also brings judgment at the appropriate time. That's what we see in chapter 17 and 18 through the experiences of Elijah up to this point. It's to direct our hearts to the one true and living God. Now, as you and I consider Elijah, a man who is larger than life to many of us, but as scripture says in James, very much like us, we see a man who courageously lives out his conviction and boldly, and he obeys God's word in defiance of dire circumstances and despite the dangerous consequences. He is a man who stood tall against all the odds. Consider this. Against all odds, Elijah stood alone against King Ahab and Queen Jezebel. Against all odds, Elijah trusted that God would provide his needs in the wilderness as with the ravens. Against all odds, he entered the heartland of the enemy territory of Sidon. Against all odds, Elijah promised the widow that God would provide for her needs. Against all odds, Elijah prayed that God would give life to the widow's son. And against all odds, Elijah challenged the 450 prophets to a contest. Against all odds, Elijah faced a people that had abandoned and were, uh, that had abandoned and were uncommitted to God. He called down fire from heaven with a simple faith. 
against all odds, Elijah had his prayer answered and he slayed the prophets of Baal. What a turn of events. And against all odds, Elijah witnessed the people and the king's heart changed as well. Yet even against all these odds, against even this great victory, Elijah, listen to me, is not the hero of this story. These events are not preserved through history so that you and I may worship and extol the heroism, the courageous, and the boldness of Elijah. Though you and I may admire them and try to imitate them. For you and I in this story are not Elijah. Most likely, you and I are either Queen Jezebel, whose heart is heavy and hardened against God, or we are King Ahab, whose passions and, and prejudice and pride cause us to leave God and go to one who is not of God. Or we are Obadiah, one who loves God but is more fearful of man, who secretly roots for God but yet is waiting and fearful of what man is, says. Or we are the prophets of God who are hiding away, not even in the picture. They were not even there to help Elijah. Or you and I are the people of Israel that are limping around between two different opinions. And people, if I can be pastorally honest, I'm afraid that many of us are those people. We're limping between two opinions. So Elijah is not the hero of the story. No, the hero of the story, and here I'm going to fill in the blank if you want to write it down. The hero of the story is Yahweh. He is God. For without God, Elijah most likely would be hiding in the mountains with the other prophets of God or slaughtered with those less fortunate. Now our minds and imagination are drawn to Elijah as it should be. However, God is the hero of this narrative. It is God who calls Elijah to confront Ahab. It is God who prevents the rain and dew from falling. It is God who provides the raven who feeds Elijah. It is God who provides the never-ending supply of flour and oil to the widow. It is God who gives life to the widow's son. It is God who pours down fire from heaven. It is God who changes the hearts of the people. It is God who preserved the life of Elijah. And it is God who calls down rain from heaven and feeds the earth once again. God is the hero of the story. And in this, let our hearts be directed to the one who is all sovereign and providential. As I said in the beginning, this story serves to glorify God by demonstrating his power over nature, his power over death, his power over kings and queens, his sovereignty over all the earth, his provision of all good gifts and grace and mercy to the just and the unjust alike. Now let me tell you, that is a God worth serving. Not false gods who give no attention, who have no voice, who do not speak. What false god are you serving 
this morning? In what ways are your passion, your pride, and your prejudices, in what way are, are you looking for something other than God to satisfy you? That's really what a false God is. It's one who says, I can satisfy you. God takes too long. God asks for too much. That's what sin is. Sin is when you're dissatisfied with the promises of God and you seek to satisfy it outside God's promises. That's what's happening here 3,000 years ago. But yet God once again says, I'm the God who truly satisfies. You see, the story not only glorifies God, and you and I ought to see that as we go through our life. Every event in our life is to cause us to glorify God, even when the consequences are dire, even when the circumstances are difficult. It should direct your heart to glorify God, for He's the one who will sustain you in sickness and in health, through wealth and through poverty. This story also serves to demonstrate that God is in the business of changing hearts. That's number two. Both the Gentile widow and the people of Israel come that know that Yahweh is the one living true God. In our scripture reading earlier, Landon took us through Ephesians chapter 2 where it talks about us being dead in our trespasses and sin, being alienated from the promises of Israel. But God, it says in verse 5, but God being rich in mercy, did what? Caused us to be born again. And see, so God today is still in the business of changing people's heart to look on him favorably, to point their hearts towards him. And I'm praying today that your heart is turned towards God. If not, you should pray, Lord, turn my heart towards you. That should be your prayer for those that you love those that you care for that are still limping between two opinions or those that have rejected the God of the Bible. Lord, change their hearts. Demonstrate your power, your sovereignty in their lives. Now you might recall from our first message of Elijah that in Malachi 4, verse 5 through 6, it's here on the monitor. God had promised this to Israel thousands of years ago. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet. Elijah had been dead now. He says, but behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. Jesus tells us that this prophecy came true through the ministry of John the Baptist, who by his call to repentance in his preaching and in his baptizing, prepared the way for Christ. And now I mention this because Elijah's courage and boldness and faith points to Christ as well. And this is how you and I should look at Elijah. Yes, we admire him. Yes, you and I desire to be like him in courage and boldness. But again, don't stop at Elijah because Elijah points to one who is greater. Just as Paul says, imitate me as I imitate Christ. Be imitators of God. So you and I, when we look at Elijah, 
Let's find strength and encouragement, understanding the reality that God is the hero and that he's the one who is glorifying himself and changing hearts. And through Elijah, he points us to one who is Christ. You see, like Elijah, Jesus came to seek and save against all odds. You see, against all odds, Jesus stood alone against the spiritual forces of darkness. Against all odds, Jesus trusted that God would provide his needs in the wilderness. Jesus entered the heartland against all odds of enemy territory of this world. Jesus promised believers that God would provide for their needs. He prayed that God would give life to rebellious sons. Against all odds, Jesus faced a people that had abandoned and were uncommitted to God as the people of Elijah's time. Against all odds, Jesus healed the lame, the deaf, and the blind. Jesus had his prayers answered while suffering on the cross. And against all odds, Jesus defeated death and the grave. I say against all odds, not because he could not do it, because you and I, we could not do so. For Jesus was able to do what we cannot. And just as God demonstrated his glory through the ministry and the life of Elijah here in these two sections, two chapters, so did God demonstrate his glory and display his glory through the ministry and life of Jesus Christ. For God demonstrated his love by sending his only son into the world. God demonstrated his mercy by pouring out his wrath on Jesus instead of us. He demonstrated his grace by changing our hearts and making us his children. He displayed his sovereignty by choosing us so that you and I become, can become heirs of Christ. And he displayed his power by making all things work to our good. He succumbs our, our illnesses, our sicknesses, our pain, and our sin for our good. And he displays his providence by giving to you and I all that we need to serve him. God displays his glory and changes the hearts of his people. Do not miss this great cosmic battle that happens each and every moment of every day. He is calling down fire miraculously. You and I many times just miss it. Today I pray that you may see and that you may worship the one true living God who displays his glory so that all may see and changes the hearts of a rebellious sinners such as you and I. With every head bowed and every eye closed. I'd like for us to take a moment to pause and to consider what we see here in scripture do you see the glory of God in your circumstance 
Do you see that God is changing hearts? Has your heart been changed? Do you proclaim that God is the one true living God? If so, would you pray that like Elijah, that you can point to Christ, the one who demonstrates God's glory and changes the hearts of rebellious sinners? Would you pray and ask God's strength to be bold and courageous in defiance of dire circumstances and despite dangerous circumstances that you may obey God's word. Let it be so. We respond to the Spirit's call this morning. Father, we just thank you for your goodness and your love. Father, we read of Elijah and we are thrilled and we are moved in spirit and we wish that we could see such things. We imagine that we would stand firmly with Elijah with our hand on the sword calling out, you are God, ready to cast judgment on those who rebel against you. But yet many times as we look in the mirror in the dark recesses, nights of our soul and our spirit, we recognize the Obadiah in our hearts or the prophets that are hiding or the people who are limping between two different opinions. Strengthen us. Make, it, make us sufficient for such things. Let our prayer be for the glory of God that others may know you, know that we are your servants, and that we have obeyed your word. And may that cause others' hearts to be changed, and may they also worship you as the one true living God. We praise in Christ's name. Amen. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.